So the book, Teenage Waste Brand, How Your Brand Can Stop Struggling and Start Scaling. First of all, when is it coming out? And second of all, what's it all about? So the book will be available on Amazon at the end of March. That's the short answer for that one. And what's it all about? So as we were talking about last week, and I, I told you that I started to discover almost by accident that brands have an adolescence, like human adolescence. This book is my exploration of all the different ways brands can manifest an adolescent symptom and what the remedies are. So for example, brands can have an identity crisis. They can oversleep. They can run with the wrong crowd. They can suffer from FOMO. <laughs> they can assert their independence. I found eight different sort of human adolescent symptoms that also apply to brands and correlate to something that's missing in the brand or in something that's missing in the marketing. Well, and I'm looking at your LinkedIn feed and you recently reposted a blog post that I think you wrote in 2012, but it remains one of my most popular updated on July 10th, 2020. And it's all about a couple of brands that I personally have loved to watch and uh, in this case, drink and eat Dunkin' Donuts, Polaroid, which is a very interesting story. And you draw some lessons from those two brands. What were those lessons? And can you explain what you were thinking about those specific lessons when it comes to keeping a brand, I guess, growing, scaling and sustainable well over time? That's one of my favorite posts because the picture that I have associated that for any listeners who are, let's say, you know, over 35 or 40 might remember Fred the Baker from the Dunkin' Donuts commercial. Time to make the donuts. Time to make the donuts. Yes. When I got to Dunkin', they were in the middle of a transition. You know, the company was founded around 1950, basically on donuts and coffee. And donuts are extremely labor intensive. I can tell you that from personal experience, not just intellectual knowledge, because one of the things that happened when I got to Dunkin' Donuts is they compelled me to go through Dunkin' Donuts University. So I spent mm. several weeks making the donuts. And uh, your listeners might be interested to know that the bowl alone for the mixer is 35 pounds empty. So a lot of muscle there. When I got there in the mid-90s, they were already in the trying to affect a transition because donuts are very labor-intensive. They spoil fast. And it's a really hard life to make the donuts. So they were doing two things there. They were trying to create networks in their business instead of one and off mom and pop shops so that they could sort of centralize the production of product in central kitchens. And then the second thing they were doing was trying to affect a shift towards more emphasis on coffee, which was higher margin and way less labor intensive. And so I got there in the middle of that shift. And so Fred the Baker, being the time to make the donuts guy, was still doing commercials for us. And at some point they decided, you know, if we're really going to emphasize coffee, we need to not be led by the donuts guy. And it wasn't a cruel thing. It was just, a, you know, an evolution of the brand. And so to do this in a fun way, in a way that our audience would not be upset, we threw Fred a big retirement party. He was one of those beloved mascot-like figures that yes. people like me who grew up during the golden age of TV commercials, I still, I think I probably this morning said to my wife, getting up out of bed, time to make the donuts. Because that's how I feel, you know, I got to get up, oh, time to make the donuts. 
But the other thing that Duncan was doing was it was reacting to a changing marketplace where donuts are very carb heavy. I mean, talk about carbohydrate heavy foods. Is there any more carbohydrate dense food, especially to those people who might be driving past the Dunkin' Donuts store on the way to the health club? It is pretty, pretty amazingly carb intensive. And, uh, you know, I actually, I didn't eat that many donuts when I was there because the access was unfettered. And if I had allowed myself in the three years I worked there to have a donut every day, I probably would have tripled in size. But yes, you're right. There were a number of trends going on in the marketplace, which of course are things that brands that really need to be conscious of. And one of them was the health trend. There were all sorts of diet plans coming out, Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers and the not the South Beach diet. Um, the Atkins was big at that time. So there were all these diets and a rising consciousness of health that made donuts a lot less attractive to the average person. We still had our heavy users and people were very loyal to that, but it was going to be a shrinking population. And so that was, as you, as you mentioned, the, another factor into why they wanted to shift away from donuts and have the coffee drive business. And then there were competitive things that were going on in the marketplace also. You know, Starbucks was a lot smaller then, but ramping up very, very fast. And I'll talk about something that wasn't in the blog post. It was very interesting, sort of an insider behind the view. But Duncan went through a couple of years while I was there of a a bit of an identity crisis themselves. It wasn't an an adolescent crisis because they had been in business at that point by 40 years. But by virtue of these major competitors coming on, they had a moment of, well, who exactly are we, you know? And Starbucks, as your listeners may know, was inspired by Howard Schultz going to Italy and looking at the Italian coffee houses and saying, wow, it's, this is such a great place to meet. I want Starbucks to be that third place. You work at home and you have somewhere else to go and socialize and be and feel comfortable. And so Duncan was like, hmm, should we be a neighborhood coffee shop? And there was definitely some conversation about that. But from a consumer insights point of view, once they started asking their consumer, right, that's what we were talking about last week on the attributes. What people were saying is, Duncan is the way I treat myself. Duncan is where I fuel in the morning. Duncan is where I recharge. And if you look at their tagline today, America runs on Duncan, that's where that comes from. Yeah. So there's that self-knowledge. And sometimes when competition comes in, it forces you to sharpen your view of where you are. Well, and let me tell you, I have a friend and we like to joke about this. He prefers Dunkin' Donut coffee to Starbucks. He won't go to Starbucks ever because he's a Dunkin' Donuts coffee guy. And yeah, I know that there are other things, but it really comes down to the fact that he doesn't view himself as a Starbucks person. He views himself as a little bit more feet on the ground, a little bit more down to earth, a little less yuppie and a little bit more blue collar, even though he's a white collar worker, he still has the associations, the brand attributes that he prefers are best exemplified by Dunkin' Donuts. So consequently, he'll get Dunkin' Coffee. And by the way, Dunkin' Donuts is getting rid of the donuts part of their brand name in a lot of test areas. And I think that's going to go nationwide, isn't it? Oh, it did already. It actually, I wrote a blog post about a year and a half ago. I think they changed their name officially to Duncan. And there was a lot of, there was, (laughs) there was actually a a newscaster who in the middle of announcing this was really upset. A lot of people in the New England area who had decades of heritage with the brand were really upset about that. You know, for me personally, having worked there, nobody said Dunkin' Donuts. We always referred to it as Dunkin'. So for me, it was not 
an effort at all. I think it has a little bit to do with the fact that some people may have thought that donuts were canceled in modern terminology, you know, that you're canceling donuts because they're not healthy. And, you know, the global elites who live on the coast are telling us, especially here in I'm in Wisconsin, by the way, we love our Dunkin Donuts with the donuts, with more donuts and even more donuts. So I can understand how middle America or traditionally oriented people might take umbrage to that because say it with me, people, you're messing with their brand. Because as you said last week, you can own your brand, but you are only a part owner. And I'm putting my own words because I use the same thing in my presentations where I say you can own your logo. According to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, you can own your copyright. But guess who owns your brand right alongside you? Your customers and your employees, because if they don't agree with what you're doing, they can kill you very, very quickly. And that brings us into one of the examples you used in your blog post that we talked about last week, Polaroid. Now, I use Kodak when I do a presentation, but it's the same thing, which is these guys were innovators in imaging, especially Polaroid was instant imaging. Well, relatively instant, you know, shake it like a Polaroid picture. You know, you, you still had to wait a little bit, but compared to having to take it to a photo mat to remind people old enough of a brand that existed way back and wait three weeks to get it processed or whatever. Polaroid was instant photography. Kodak owned imaging for a century. They invented digital imaging, but they lost their brand when they learned that they loved to sell film more than they did innovate in the imaging space. Same thing with Polaroid. Now they're a shadow of themselves. Oh, they totally are a shadow of themselves. It's, it's so heartbreaking because they were such a salt of the earth kind of brand, you know, and, and those instant cameras, which still exist in some iteration today. There's, there's a group, some group that went and actually figured out how to manufacture them again. And so you can actually find a Polaroid branded instant camera, but it's not, you know, what it was in, back in the day. By the way, I, I am old enough to remember when, you know, you could suddenly get film processed at an hour and it was a big deal. Oh, it was a huge deal. <laughs> let me tell you, you young kids with your iPhones and your JPEGs, let me tell you. But, but it's true. Times change. And the, in the case of Kodak specifically, they invented, I, I, if you looked into the intellectual property that's in your smartphone, a lot of those patents are owned by the Eastman Kodak company. And that's why they still exist as a company, frankly, to just take those licensing fees from Apple, from Samsung, from all the companies that are now owning imaging. But it's so sad because why did Kodak specifically stop adhering to their culture of innovation? Because they got lost in the fact that they were selling a lot of film and they didn't want to see film go away. If we, if we really promote this digital photography thing and that doesn't require film, that's going to kill us as a company. No, it's going to save you as a company, but they learned that too late. Well, I don't think they learned it ever, to be honest. No. And, and so the other thing that, you know, this kind of leads to, which I'm betting we're aligned with when we just met, but I have this feeling that you're of the same mindset is when you talk about a brand's purpose, the reason they're on earth, you know, a good brand purpose is it's going to last you decades. And so by that definition, it's not product driven, you know, that neither Polaroid nor Kodak 
was in the film business, right? They were in the memory business or the instant memory business or the collecting of, you know, they, they failed to see that that was their purpose on earth and the reason that people went to their brands, right? Yes, the, the film quality might have been great and they may have had uh, a nostalgic affiliation after using them for years. But the truth was they reached for them when they wanted to capture and save a memory. And so by taking their eye off the ball of how will people want to keep capturing memories, and I'm using one angle, you know, maybe, maybe they had a spin angle, but, you know, they, they took their eye off this longer term purpose of why people came to them and stuck with a product that was dying. This episode of the Nonfiction Brand Podcast is brought to you by my new book, Nonfiction Brand. Discover, craft, and communicate the completely true, completely you brand you already are, now available on Amazon.com. Jay Baer, best-selling author of Talk Triggers, said, The book is outstanding. Highly recommended. A spectacularly useful guide to personal branding that pulls off the difficult trick of being both realistic and inspirational. A must-read, regardless of where you are in your own brand-building journey. To get your copy, head on over to Amazon.com and search Nonfiction Brand. And let's get you all the credit you deserve for the completely true, completely you brand you already are. If you want to see exactly what a brand master understands about why people would go to, in this case, Kodak specifically, all you have to do is check out an episode of Mad Men called The Carousel and watch that episode and you will see at the end of a pitch, your own eyes cheering up because you realize I'm not buying film. Right. I'm not buying film processing. I'm not buying convenience. I'm not buying, you know, imaging. I'm buying my children when they were little and I loved them and they would still call me daddy instead of roll their eyes at me now that they're teenagers and they're going to college and I'm never going to see them again and they better have grandchildren really soon. I mean, seriously, that's the product that Kodak and Polaroid were actually selling. And it goes back to what we said last week, which is, don't get stuck in understanding what your title is or what you technically do. Understand what people want to engage with you for. In my case, you know, I like to provoke people into thinking twice or three times, four times so that they go, oh, oh, oh. If I don't get that response from people, I feel I personally failed. And from what you've been talking about, Evelyn, you like people to go, wow, that's really well thought through. And I believe it because you said it and I feel confident. So I'm buying confidence, trustworthiness and diligence and intelligence when I engage with Evelyn Starr. Am I overstating the, what you sell for yourself? Well, you know, I don't present it into that that way to people, but yeah, no, that that's exactly what it is. And then I don't have provocateur as my adjective, but what often happens because I have a strategy and insights background is that I often give them an aha moment. You know, it was it was something they didn't see. It was yeah. you know their product was selling for some reason they couldn't understand, and I can unearth that for them. So I bring the intelligence and the trustworthiness, and they. You know, I actually had a client say to me, you know, if I had you research this, you would get to the bottom of it. I just know it. Yeah. You know, and that's why they come to me. It's like, I know if I engage with you, I'm going to find out the answer. 
And consequently, you don't stop until you find an answer that is going to make them go, that is so simple. And it was right in front of my face and I never saw it. Right. It's like Disneyland or Disney World, the happiest place on earth. No, it's not. Half the time it's way too hot. It's way too crowded. It's way too expensive. And yet every one of your family, especially if you have children, you'll talk about that trip the rest of your life and how it was so funny when you spilled the ice cream on yourself and mom got scared of the thing and the ride. Or we have a family story, which I'm not going to say which daughter, but one of our very little daughters sat on Ariel's lap and threw up on her. And that is a family story that will be coming out at the engagement party when she does get engaged. And we're going to laugh our butts off because it occurred at Disneyland. Couldn't happen anyplace else. The happiest place on earth. And we're all going to have those memories. That's true. But, you know, I want to I want to relate this to something we were talking about before, you know, last week with the attributes and every and how those are in the eye of the beholder to an extent. You know, Disney, when I was a kid meant, you know, weekly movies and a break from things and a lot of joy. And yes, we went to Disney World, I think when I was 13. I have a younger brother and sister, so we had to wait till everybody was old enough to handle a day there, which is, you know, quite a lot. As a parent, you know, my kids started clamoring to go to Disney. I looked at it completely differently. The brand changed in my mind. I yep. mean, you know, I was the one leading the trip. And, and when you go to Disney World, yeah, it may be the happiest place on earth. But to me, it involves a military operation level of planning to get through and do what you want to do in a reasonable amount of time and make sure you have reservations because everything gets so booked up. So it's, you know, it's, it's changed in my mind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But believe me, when I took my family there, we did the clockwise route where everyone goes to the right. We went to the left all the way to the back of the park because then we can hit all the big rides very quickly and do them twice in a row before everyone catches up. And then we had lunch planned. But yeah, it was military precision. But that's because I wanted them to get what I got, which was the most fun, the most rides, the most everything out of that thing. And consequently, those memories are not going away ever. Believe me, I don't go to Disney because I like spending that much money or <laughs> sitting out there in Florida <laughs> and sweating my everything off, you know. But let me tell you, I know what their product is. It's not the weather. No. Yeah. So tell us about the book. It's coming out sometime toward the end of March 2021. It'll be available on Amazon.com. Do you have an actual publication date planned? I don't right now. And I will share with your listeners this. I'm self-publishing the book. And while I may be a brand expert, I am a newbie to self-publishing. Let me tell you, my two books are self-published on Amazon. And it's it's a skill set that actually, once you have it, it's a superpower. Yeah, I can, I can see that as someone who's in the midst of acquiring it. So I'm feeling good that it will be up by the end of the month. But everything is new to me. And so I, um, I don't have a specific date yet because it's hard for me to know how long things are going to take. Well, let me ask you this question. Why are you doing it? Why are you self-publishing a book? I mean, I'm not going to guess your age, but you're definitely north of trying new things just for the heck of it age. Uh, (laughs) You've reached what I would call the traditional years of, well, you know, that's something I don't have to pay attention to anymore. Yeah, I'm definitely there. And I don't have a problem with my age. You You said you were married 25 years. We celebrated our 26th last summer. Yeah. 
And I did not get married at 20. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't get married at 20 either. But still, you're taking on this. It's basically a Herculean task to write a book, to have it designed if you're not designing it yourself, but eat, work with a designer to do all the proofing, all the cover art. And, and just there's so many things you don't know you don't know until you're in the midst of it that it, it can drive you almost crazy. Why would you take that on at, I'm not going to say your age, but at your stage of career, what, what is, what do you hope that book does for your personal brand? Well, you know, so the more I talked about brands and adolescents with people, the more the light bulbs went off and it was just so helpful to people. So I thought a book would allow me to help more people. You know, uh, rather than working one-on-one, -on -one, not everybody can afford a consultant, but not everybody needs a consultant. So I wanted to get those ideas and that help out to the world. I'm also a writer and I did not want to, once everything was done, I didn't want to wait 18 months until some publishing house determined that they could fit it into their schedule. I wanted creative control and I wanted to get it out as soon as I can. And then, you know, you talked about being at a certain stage of life. It's been really exciting sometimes overwhelming, but very exciting to learn so much new. First in the, write, the process of writing a book, because I worked with a professional editor and I learned so much. And then in the process of self-publishing, this is a product. I've always marketed myself as services and now I have a product to market and I wanted to learn about that. Well, and don't underestimate the value of that product because each one of those books, which by the way, when you get your author's copies, you know, you can buy them in bulk yourself. And I don't know what your page count is, but let's say it's over 200 pages, 250 pages, something like that. It's going to come out to total cost for you shipped to wherever you live around $5 a copy. That to me is the low, a pretty darn low cost premium brochure for myself, my personal brand and my services. And I can see on your website that you're doing some speaking. Do you want to grow that side of your business? Because if you do, Having a book is like a godsend for the speaking circuit, because then you can get that book that represents everything about who you are, what you do and how you do it in the hands of the bookers at events, at companies, at associations. And all of a sudden you can start a whole new career right when you are coming into what I think of as the Yoda years, which is I was Luke Skywalker swinging a lightsaber for a long, long time. Now it's okay for people to come to Dagobah to learn from Yoda. I think our biggest product right now is wisdom that's been attained yes. over decades. Now it's the time for sharing that wisdom. And there are few better ways to do that than writing a book. And kudos to you for taking on the, what I said, the, the Augean stables of, uh, of publishing, self-publishing. It's a pain, but boy, when it's done, it's like a true unlock or level up for yourself and your personal brand. Yeah, no, I, I'm very excited about it. And <laughs> I think that, you know, when you see your words in, in print and laid out professionally, it's, uh, it's a gas, I got to say, you know, <laughs> it's very exciting. You asked me about the speaking. When I originally started writing the book, I definitely envisioned building up the speaking portion of my business. And that may still happen, but I have to say, I'm kind of looking in to see what happens post-pandemic because yeah. I wonder how long it's going to take for those large-scale events to come back. Okay, nobody knows, but here's my right. guess. Yeah. 
There's a lot of pent up energy, a lot of pent up dollars that people have not spent on vacations and travel and stuff like that. So if all of a sudden everybody's inoculated and in good shape, and you have the opportunity to have your company pay for you to go to a conference in pick any cool location, people are going to jump on that like crazy. And I think the speaking biz will come back. Now, I think it's also very important that people have learned, especially pro speakers, to have a virtual speaking product and an in-person speaking product. Because I look at uh, someone like Jay Bear. He does a ton of public speaking. I just saw in his social feed that he did one of his first face-to-face socially distance talks to somebody recently. And that's a good sign that people are kind of going, you know what? But who knows? I'm all about being safe, but I'm also all about getting my personal brand out there in very effective ways. Presentations are a tremendously effective way to evangelize your personal brand. And and not only you evangelize your personal brand, but I love the audience engagement. The times that I've spoken are the places where I've I've gotten more subscribers, but I've also just, you know, to my newsletter and, and, and I've gotten clients out of that, but the interpersonal engagement, you know, before and after the presentation is as pleasurable to me as the actual presentation itself. Yeah. Well, hopefully listeners, you've been able to find out that Evelyn Starr is someone you need to know more about. And once again, how can people follow you or get on your newsletter? Like if I wanted to literally subscribe to your monthly newsletter, how do I do that? You go to E-Star Associates, which is E-S-T-A-R-R, two R's like in Ringo, associates.com. And there's a subscribe button right there when you get there on the homepage or right on the upper right, outlined in orange, and you can hit that and that will take you to the subscription form for my monthly newsletter, which is free. People can also follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. It's Evelyn J. Star in that case, because there's more than one Evelyn Star in this world, it turns out. Yeah. And make sure there are two R's, S-T-A-R-R, associated with that Evelyn J. I want to say thank you so much, Evelyn, for coming on the podcast. It was a really delightful conversation, and I really like meeting you because I think we belong to the same church. Thanks. So. The Church of Brand. And also the church of making that brand mean something. It's not a fictional thing that you tie on your feet like a pair of shoes. It's actually the DNA of who you are as a human being. It's about who you are, what you do and how you do it. But also it's really about what people want and value from you. So you better do the work to figure that out. And, you know, following Evelyn Starr and getting on her newsletter list is certainly going to be one of the ways that you can remind yourself that, oh yeah, I need to do that. The other way to remind yourself that, oh yeah, I need to do that, is to listen to the Nonfiction Brand Podcast, which I hope you will like, subscribe, refer, and review wherever you get your podcast because that really helps other people find it. That's it for me this week. I'm D.P. Knuton for the Nonfiction Brand Podcast, and she is... Evelyn Starr. And I'll be talking at you again next week. Bye-bye.